It's Thursday, September 2nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Gavin Newsom recall election is just under two weeks away. September 14th marks the day, but many have already voted by mail, and the current snapshot is about 4.7 million Californians who have cast their ballots. Twice as many Democrats have voted as Republicans, and so far, they have been older and white. Seema Mehta, political reporter at the LA Times, joins us for who the campaigns are targeting in the final days, younger voters and Latinos. Next, we have seen the demand for COVID-19 monoclonal antibody treatments skyrocket in the last few weeks. Some states have set up infusion centers where patients can get the treatment and are also passing rules where you can get it without a doctor's prescription. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today, joins us for how this underutilized treatment is gaining traction. Finally, we have been seeing an increase in overdose deaths where fentanyl is being laced into other illicit drugs. In mid-August, one town in Suffolk County, New York, suffered eight overdoses with six of them dying over the course of three days. All of them were tied to cocaine laced with a synthetic opioid. Police are seeing this trend all over the country, including places like San Francisco and Nebraska. Sarah Maslin-Near, staff reporter at the New York Times, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Reject this latest effort to attack our core tenets of democracy. A no vote will be heard loud and clear, not only across this state, but all across the country. Joining us now is Seema Mehta, political reporter at the LA Times. Thanks for joining us, Seema. Thanks for having me on. We have less than two weeks for the recall election for Governor Gavin Newsom to be over We have some new data on some uh, mail ballot returns so far to see who's been voting so far. It's obviously just a snapshot right now. We've got two weeks to go, but we're seeing twice as many Democrats have voted than Republicans. But some of the weak spots for Governor Gavin Newsom is the turnout of Latino voters and younger voters. Uh, So Seema, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing in, in this recall election? As you said, it's very early days. So these numbers tell us a little bit about who's voted so far, but they don't tell us how they voted. But we do know that more than 4 million Californians have already cast their ballots by mail. We know that Democrats are voting at a rate of more than twice as much as Republicans. Seniors are voting in very large numbers. So some of that is good news for Governor Newsom in terms of his attempt to fight off his recall attempt. But there's definitely weakness as well. Young people in particular, and also Latinos, which are two key parts of his coalition, are not voting anywhere close to their numbers. And he really needs them to turn out. And these are two groups that are notoriously difficult to turn out during non-presidential years. So he has a steep climb ahead of him. So while, while there is some good news for him in terms of the number of Democrats that are voting, there is evidence of weakness. One of the ongoing storylines with this entire recall campaign has been that enthusiasm gap, that Democrats really aren't that enthused to go out and turn out to vote. Republicans are, Uh, you know, obviously they really want to get rid of Gavin Newsom. So all of that uh, momentum is behind them. Right. And that's what we've seen in a lot of the polling. So the Democrats are sort of pleased with the numbers they're seeing coming in from Democrats. But one thing we really have to remember is that voting norms in this country have changed so dramatically. Up until very recently, Republicans consistently voted early and Democrats consistently voted on Election Day. With President Trump, with former President Trump's words about mail ballots, his his questioning the integrity of mail voting and urging his supporters to vote at the polls on Election Day, that has been completely flipped upside down. So now we're often seeing Democrats voting early and Republicans showing up on Election Day, just because a lot of Republican voters are now very skeptical that if they you know, mail in their ballots, that it'll get to where you know, that their vote will count. 
Yeah. And anecdotally, you know, I that's what I've been hearing, that everybody's waiting until September 14th to go cast their ballot in person or go turn it in in person, at least. And so that that's kind of what I've been hearing around town. I'm based in Los Angeles, so I'm always looking to those numbers. You did make mention in the article that L.A. County is uh, the largest county in the state is really lagging when it comes to returning these ballots so far. Right. I mean, the Bay Area is just, they, their numbers are so high, like, you know, the high 20s. And that's also one of the things that the Newsom team looks at as good because that's his home base. That's very liberal. And when you talk about L.A. County, not only is it the largest county in the state, it has a lot of Latino voters. It has the most Latino voters in the state. So the fact that you know, the Latino numbers are lower than they should be, that it represents one of the reasons why L.A. County is, is lagging behind. How has the outreach been to Latino voters so far? Because I know uh, Larry Elder, who's pretty much the leader among candidates seeking to replace him, former San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner, also they're both airing Spanish language ads. They're targeting them a lot. Is the Newsom campaign doing the same? Right. I mean, the Newsom campaign says that they have an eight-figure turnout effort that is purely devoted to communities of color in California. So that means social media, that means you know, mail, that means people knocking on doors, making phone calls, making texts. So they're definitely heavily invested in this. Like they know that they have it, you know, they, what they need to do here. Um, the question is, you know, how effective are they? I mean, then Elder and Faulkner, as you mentioned, are both running television ads. They don't have as much money. I mean, they have a fraction of the money that Newsom has. So I question how often voters will actually see their ads. Um, but they are making some sort of effort there. And earlier today, Elder had a press conference with two uh, former Latino elected officials. And so he does, I mean, he believes, you know, when you, when you hear him talk, when he talks about crime, he talks about how it disproportionately affects minority communities, that kind of thing. So they are both trying to make a play, but Republicans in the state and across the nation, you know, have obviously struggled with minority voters for quite some time. You made mention in your article that Scott Walker is the only governor in U.S. history to successfully beat a recall. So obviously the Newsom campaign is trying to take cues from that, but there's a lot of differences. What, what did Scott Walker do right that was able to uh, let him beat that recall? I think one of the things is that there was a lot of time that passed between some of his controversial acts in terms of unions and the election. Also, it's a very, it's a very different electorate in Wisconsin than it is in California. And so it's, it's, it is a little bit difficult to compare the two. Um, one of the things that Team Newsom is doing is obviously they're not making their messaging about Newsom. They're making it about the replacement candidate. It's all about, you know, if, if, you, if the recall is successful, these Republicans who oppose you know, mass mandates and vaccine mandates, they will be in power. Like, you know, they're saying that California will be led like a governor that's similar to the governors in Texas and Florida. And you can tell it's a really, it's almost like a fear-based message aimed at the Democrats who maybe don't love Newsom, but do not want to see a, a you know, Republican lead the state. Seema Mehta, political reporter at the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. I'd like to spend the next couple of minutes in addressing a much underutilized intervention for COVID-19, and that is the use of monoclonal antibodies for the treatment and prevention of SARS-CoV-2 infection and COVID-19 disease. Joining us now is Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about monoclonal antibody treatments. Right now, the demand for them is skyrocketing. We've seen Republican governors in Florida, Missouri, Texas touting them and saying that they're available to people, even opening up uh, these infusion centers. So, you know, you don't have to necessarily go to a hospital. You can go to one of these other places to get these treatments. But even Dr. Fauci said these are very underutilized treatments for people that have COVID. So, Karen, tell us a little bit about them and then and how they're exploding right now. 
So there are a very effective treatment for people in the earliest days of a COVID infection who are at high risk. So somebody who is over 65, who's obese, who is diabetic, who has autoimmune issues, all of those categories of people are considered at high risk for a serious infection with COVID-19. If they get these drugs within generally about three or four days after they're first diagnosed or they had developed symptoms, it reduces their risk of hospitalization and death by at least 70%, which is a lot, obviously. So they're very effective. They have minimal side effects. The issue is they're difficult to deliver. Generally, they're delivered via infusion. It takes about a half hour of sitting with a drip going into your arm, and then they have to watch you for an hour to make sure you don't have a bad reaction. Because people who are getting these are highly contagious. They can't get them in a typical infusion center where you might go if you are on dialysis, for instance, or on getting cancer care. You obviously don't want to mix people with, with those conditions with people who are contagious with COVID. So they need separate facilities. And some of them are in hospital parking lots. Some of them, as you said, are in specially designed clinics. But that's been a challenge for some hospitals and medical facilities to set up these infusion centers. And what drugs are we talking about here? I know Regeneron is one of them. That's the one that President Trump was receiving when he had COVID. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, he was receiving the Regeneron as well. But there's another one, too, and uh, I cannot pronounce it for the life of me. The Regeneron drug is called Regen-CoV, and the other one, Sotrovimab, that anything that ends in M-A, the letters M-A-B, is, that's for monoclonal antibody. So the ones there, there are three that are approved for COVID, but the one made by Lilly, unfortunately, no longer works against the Delta variant. So that one has been, uh, is not being distributed anymore. So the Regeneron one is the one that you're likely to get if you go to a clinic or hospital at the moment. That's the, va- the vast majority of the ones being distributed now are from that company. And what kind of numbers are we seeing? Because you mentioned in the article that a typical week in June, monoclonal antibodies were given to about 10 people, and this was across the entire Houston metropolitan area. This past week, I guess, 1,200 patients were getting it in that same area. Right. I thought that was astounding, that number. Um, That's what they told me at Houston Methodist Hospital. And then nationally, Regeneron sent out about 25,000 doses a week just a month ago, and this week, 168,000 doses. So demand really is increasing substantially. Unfortunately, because so many people are getting sick with COVID, the surge, especially with the Delta variant, a lot of people are getting sick, and also people at high risk for serious disease. And because of the experience that doctors had during the last surge and saw that these monoclonal antibodies were helpful, they're turning to them more eagerly now, I guess I would say, because of that success. And there's a couple of interesting actions taken in some of these states as well, where I guess a surgeon general in Florida said, well, you don't even need a doctor's recommendation to take this. If you're sick or you feel like you're getting sick, go to an infusion center and we can treat you with this now. And I guess because uh, we paid for a lot of these up front, it is still free to a lot of people. It should be free. Um, They cost about $2,100 a dose, but the government pre-purchased over a million and a half of these doses and there's still many available. The benefit is much greater for somebody who is at higher risk. Again, somebody who's over 65, who's obese, diabetic, immunocompromised than it is to an otherwise healthy person who's very unlikely to end up hospitalized anyway. Karen, I wanted to ask because I follow you on Twitter and I saw you had recently went on a vacation and it was kind of ruined by a bad test, a bad COVID test where you and I think your parents it said that you were yep. uh, tested positive, And then later on, you got a PCR test and it came out negative. So not to name any companies or anything, but how, how did that experience go? Because uh, we had for a long time been hearing some of these quick tests aren't always as reliable. 
They're supposed to be very good. In this case, uh, we got caught on the wrong end of the statistics, I guess. This particular test has a 3 or 4% failure rate. Shouldn't happen to three of us in the same batch of tests. The company has told me that they're checking the batch to make sure there's not something wrong with it. But yes, I have an 86-year-old high-risk father. So when I wasn't feeling well, I got a quick test to make sure I didn't have a problem. When it was positive, we all kind of freaked out. Oh, um, my father and mother went to the hospital to get monoclonal antibodies, actually. And there they were retested appropriately and were told they did not, in fact, have COVID. By that point, I was already five hours into my six-hour trip home. Um, oh, no. And uh, so, yeah, um, so I... <laughs> Uh, retested, got another different brand rapid test that night, and then got a PCR the next day, also negative. My brother, who had been with us the day before, spent a lot of money changing his flight back to the West Coast. So it was to avoid contaminating anyone in case he got sick. So it was a lot of chaos created from from a false positive. It's better clinically speaking, health-wise, to get a false positive than a false negative. False negative means you're contagious and you don't know it and you might go out and infect other people. So that's worse uh, from a societal perspective, but it definitely uh, ruined my family vacation. Well, glad to hear everybody was healthy, at least on all of that. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Because of various changes in the market, in fact, cocaine is being cut with this drug, fentanyl, a synthetic opioid, that a crumb can kill you. It's 50 times more powerful than heroin and very deadly. Joining us now is Sarah Maslin-Near, staff reporter at the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk about something that we've been seeing for a while now. Uh, we've been hearing a lot about overdose deaths over the course of the pandemic and how they were increasing. One of the things that we've been seeing is other illicit drugs being laced with fentanyl. And you wrote a story about Suffolk County, where in mid-August, there was just a string of 911 calls to the local police department saying that people were overdosing. And I guess, uh, you know, in just a matter of days, eight people overdosed. They died. And it was just a, a huge, huge problem. They were using cocaine that was laced with fentanyl. And police and prosecutors out there are just seeing so much of this right now. So, Sarah, tell us a little bit more about it. Yes, and it's really a shocking incident. These eight people overdosed, six people died in three days, all of them 40 years old and younger, from cocaine. And that's just not what we've been hearing. That's not the narrative, right? It's opioid, it's heroin, it's heroin cut with fentanyl. But because of various changes in the market, in fact, cocaine is being cut with this drug, fentanyl, a synthetic opioid, that a crumb can kill you. It's 50 times more powerful than heroin and very deadly. You know, and it's kind of weird to say, but we've been talking a lot throughout the pandemic about supply chain issues and things like that. So it's weird to say that even drug dealers are having these problems also with their normal supply. So that's why they're turning to fentanyl because it is cheaper and it does give you that big high and all that stuff. And that's why they're cutting the cocaine with this. The same stuff that's prevented refrigerators from being delivered has prevented large quantities of drugs from being delivered. And at the same time, as you pointed out when you first spoke, there is an increased demand from people who the pandemic is affecting emotionally and perhaps keeping unemployed. So drug dealers are bulking out their wares with this really dangerous stuff cutting cocaine with fentanyl. But another aspect of that is fentanyl is powerful. It's a powerful high and it hooks you powerfully. And if you survive it, it's really a great way to get someone hooked on far harder stuff 
than cocaine. So there's that element too, a nefarious intent to deliver a more powerful high and hook users on bigger, badder drugs, and also this supply chain issue. Part of the story is that it illustrates that it affects everyone, not just addicts, but even recreational users are getting caught by all of this. Yes. And these six people, none of them, for the most part, were hardened addicts, you know, the stereotype that we've come to know and, and often dismiss. I mean, you know, those, those are lives you know, worthy of saving as well. These people were mostly restaurant workers. They had varied lives. One was 25 years old with a six-month-old child. I spoke to the father of one 27-year-old who died. His name was Seth Tramanada, and his father is the same name. And he said, you know, you can say what you want. He bought this drug and, and he chose to use cocaine, but he didn't ask for this. And that's really the through line here. These were all people who got high on a Wednesday, Thursday night and were killed because of that. In this case, also, police were able to catch up with the dealers, right? They are the accused dealers, two different people, one man with a extensive record named Levain Creighton. He has not yet been indicted, as far as I understand. But uh, there are potential, actually, this is quite interesting, manslaughter charges that he might face if the toxicology reports of these six people come back as definitive fentanyl with cocaine. That's a new movement. Uh, 25 states have new laws called death by dealer laws, which means if a dealer is found responsible for supplying the drugs that killed someone, they can be charged with manslaughter. New York does not have that law yet, but local officials are trying to push that. And, and what is the response to that? Do people like that idea? I, I noticed in your article that there's other people saying that maybe that's not the right way to go. There's better ways to avoid stuff like this happening, giving more access to fentanyl testing kits, making naloxone more available. And, you know, that uh, obviously helps uh, people call it Narcan. Also, it helps some people snap out of the overdose. So people say that those are better ways to avoid these situations. On the face of it, a death by dealer statute sounds great, right? If you scare those people who are dealing these terrible drugs from potentially huge sentences for killing their clients, maybe it'll stop them. But critics point out the very intense war on drugs, the huge sentences for all sorts of drug-related felonies haven't stopped people from using drugs. And they say that punitive measures don't work. They actually might make people afraid to call in an overdose for help because they don't want to be culpable. And they say what you just pointed out, that actually increase harm reduction, increase testing kit access so people can test if their drugs have fentanyl because they're going to use anyway, and various supplies of anti-overdose drugs. And that might make people come out of the woodwork and protect people who have overdosed. Now, this is one incident, obviously, that we've been talking about in Suffolk County, New York, but this is happening all over the place. You mentioned the article, San Francisco, Nebraska are dealing with things like this. I'll give you some really interesting numbers for scope. According to the Rockefeller Institute, in 2014, there are about 5,500 cocaine overdose deaths, and 11% of those involve fentanyl. 2018, the last year numbers are available, it was 14,600 deaths and 60% of those cocaine deaths involve fentanyl. So this is national. This is growing. People need to know there is no such thing as a safe drug. Sarah Maslin-Near, staff reporter at The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for covering this important story. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.